Here they come! Welcome to episode 181 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and today I'm solo to have a look at IT, but IT with an exclamation mark, the 1967 British horror loose remake of Der Gollum by Seven Arts Productions. Yeah, that is IT. It! Everyone is afraid of it. Look at the ape in his face. That's what killed the old man. Arms can't kill it. Fire can't burn it. Water can't drown it. Only one man can control it, and he is bad. I'm your master. Lower your arms. I am your master. Go on, go on, please, don't kill him. weeks ago on my YouTube channel, my Mystery Models YouTube channel, I did a, a, a short film on looking back at one of the books I've had since the mid-70s, very influential book called A Pictorial History of Horror Movies by Dennis Gifford. And while I was flicking through that, I was, I was waffling away looking at the pictures and I, I, I got to a page with a still from it with an exclamation mark. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I used to look at that photo quite a bit because the, uh, as I say, it exclamation mark, I'm going to stop saying that. That's, that that'll be annoying. Um, is a very loose re- remake of the German expressionist film Der Gollum from 1925 with Paul Wagner, uh, Der Gollum. Um, but what, what is striking? I mean, he's in there with his big clay wig. Um, what's so striking about that photo from um, this 1966 version is uh, the, the, the actual creature design. The golem itself has got this very triangular head and very crudely carved. They say in the film it's made out of rock, but it looks like it's just made out of clay. Um, holding a girl on the rooftop of a, uh, a country house, right? And... Uh, I, yeah, I used to look at that. I mean, this is back in the day when you had your reference books and you just look through them and look through them and look through them because there's never going to be a chance you would ever get to see these things. But uh, yeah, one 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 day, one night, um, 
I'm guessing it must be before about 85 because about 85 that's when we got a video recorder and and um, I would have videoed this film um, but I didn't so it's before 85 um, it was on uh, BBC and um, BBC had a habit back then of uh, showing late night horror films and it was on and I stayed up late I can remember uh, being in the living room watching it and uh, enjoying it um, but it, it it's an elusive film um, you, you don't see it mentioned an awful lot um roddy mcdowell is the star of it but it doesn't tend to come up in any um you know mention uh they nobody seems to mention it when they you do uh documentaries on roddy mcdowell seems to be a bit of a forgotten film which doesn't seem to be that available i've never seen it you know um in the shops or online never see it um but uh yeah after doing that video a couple of weeks ago i thought you yeah, you know, I might just track this down, and and I did. I managed to find a second-hand copy on eBay. I think it's a, a bootleg. Certainly looks like a bootleg when I put it in my uh, my DVD player. Um, and uh, yeah, I I watched it for the first time in quite a long time, forty odd years. Um, so this uh, little podcast today is just uh, um, I I was scribbling down notes as I went. Um, I think it is a bit of an obscure film. I don't know how readily available it is. Maybe you can just watch it on YouTube. But, uh, um, yeah, so today I, I, I'll just tell you what I think of it. Um, and it is quite a surprise because apart from the titular character, I don't remember an awful lot about it. So let's crack on. Let's get in. So this is a cheap film, we've got to say straight away. It's a very cheap British horror film. Made in 66, released in 67. Starts with stock footage of firemen tackling a blaze at a warehouse. That's never a good sign when uh, a film starts with stock footage. Um, And uh, next day we've got a very nervous looking Roddy McDowell who plays Arthur Pym. Um, You know he's up to something. He's all shifty. He's hiding keys and that. We don't quite know to begin with what's going on. Um, And his boss, Grove... Um, which was a massive shock because he was played by Ernest Clark, who anybody my age from the UK will know from uh, uh, Doctor in the House, uh, etc. You know, the uh, the head honcho in the hospitals, he always seemed to play. But anyway, we find out that this warehouse that's burnt down, we never find out why it's burnt down, but this th- this warehouse that's burnt down is completely wrecked apart from it. Um, there he is standing there, this... Uh, um, as uh, Grover calls it, a mid-European primitive from about 1550. Um, And that's the only thing left standing in amongst all this rubble. Um, You've just got this statue standing there, this grey-blue statue. As I say, uh, pointy head, elongated neck, arms outstretched. Um, Grove, I've got so many questions about this film. Um, Grove decides to put his umbrella on its upstretched arms, Roddy McDowell, Arthur Pym, turns away, there's a scream, and uh, Grove is dead. And when Arthur returns to his body and looks at the statue, one of the arms is slightly lower than it was. He picks the umbrella up, he can't put the umbrella in its arms anymore. And so, yeah, um, Arthur starts to get the feeling that something's not right. Um, Talking about things not right... I had completely forgotten that Arthur is like a UK version of Norman Bates. He goes home. The reason he was shifty and uh, 
hiding the keys back in a drawer was he's actually been pinching jewellery for his mum, who is back in the living room at his house in a rocking chair. We see her from the back rocking away like mad. No idea what's going on, but the way it's framed, it's like something's not right here. And then, oh, what a surprise, we get the big reveal. Um, there's his bewigged, desiccated corpse of a mother sat in a rocking chair. Why that rocking chair is rocking, why he's got her there, we never find out. In fact, there's a there's an even bigger question coming up. But anyway, um, so yeah, um, the film continues. Um, the Gollum, for absolutely no reason, um, well, I suppose there is a reason. He, he falls and kills an electrician who, I, I mean, the Gollum's been moved to the museum now. Um, he, he kills this electrician because the electrician has dared strike a match on him. So he's dead. Paul Maxwell turns up, um, which, again, is a big surprise. Paul Maxwell, um, you know... Ian and I, we do a, a another podcast called uh, Jerry Anderson Heroes and Villains, and Paul Maxwell's going to turn up an awful lot because he was in an awful lot of Jerry Anderson films, um, most notably um, Steve Zodiac in the puppet series Fireball XL5. Um, other genre fans will know him from Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. He's uh, the guy with the hat on the ship at the very beginning. Um, and he's also Llewellyn, is it Lewin? No, it's Lewin, Van Lewin, uh, the, 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 the public face of the corporation, the company in Aliens at the board meeting with Ripley at the very beginning. So he turns up, he comes along, he tells Arthur and us that this is a Hebrew statue of the Gollum, and in legend, the Gollum was created out of clay, um... And can only do what it's told. But unfortunately he tells Pim all this. Um, and also points out to Pim that there's an inscription on, on its side. Pim takes a rubbing of it. Goes off to see this uh, uh, guy. And this is very nifty. He reads out the inscription. And according to the inscription. This statue in the 17th century can't be destroyed by fire. In the 18th century can't be destroyed can't be destroyed by fire or water 19th century can't be destroyed by fire or water or force 20th century can't be destroyed by fire or water or force or anything man created and in the 21st century only by god's hand can it be destroyed because man will exist no more i.e. the golem will have destroyed all of mankind yeah, and this guy, he, he he believes it is the Great Gollum, he calls it, and it was believed to have been destroyed a long time ago. But it's never explained how it turned up in that warehouse, which inexplic inexplicably burns down. He also, unfortunately, tells Arthur that it can be animated, brought to life, by putting a scroll under its tongue, when I say scroll, by the way, I mean, you know, a scroll of paper, not a scroll from, you know, the Marvel Universe. Um, but he won't tell Pim where he can find it. And then we've got this odd sequence where the statue points at its foot and Arthur looks down and the scroll is under one of its toenails. Who last used the golem? 
decided it would be finished and put it under its toenail is never explained. So yeah, he takes the scroll out, he puts it in its mouth and a heartbeat starts and Roddy McDowell starts going OTT. Now, Roddy McDowell, I don't mind in small doses. He's fine when he keeps it reined in, but when he starts getting very elaborate with big hand gestures and vocal performances, I mean, that's fine when he's, you know, in Planet of the Apes. You need that to animate the mask and everything. But here he goes way off the charts. This, of course, is around the time he was going to be the mad, no, not the mad hatter, the bookworm in the Batman TV series. This is all about the same time. So he decides to use the golem for selfish purposes. Uh, there's a new boss. He wanted the job when Grove was killed, but a new boss uh, comes along. Uh, he gets the golem to kill him. He also gets the golem to smash the place up a bit so he can rob a few more pieces of jewellery for his mum. And this is the first time we see the golem, you know, animated, because up until now... Um, it's a bit like the Weeping Angels in modern Doctor Who. Um, it moves, but you don't see it move. But now you do, and of course, um, it's a guy in a rubber costume and moving very slowly and ponderously, and it's very Frankenstein monster-like um, in its movements and its speed. Um, the top half is fine. You know, I like, I like, as I say, the thin neck, the pointy head and everything. Um, but... You see him from the waist down and everything is very chunky and I think he's got platform boots on to give him some, some height as well. Now, I've, I've watched this bit twice and I cannot figure this out. For no reason whatsoever, Arthur takes the golem in broad daylight outside, puts him in a truck, takes him to Hammersmith in London, gets him out the truck, gets him under Hammersmith Bridge and orders him to destroy the bridge. We don't see the destruction, we hear it, and we've got stock, you know, uh, destruction sounds and screams. And when we do see what the Golem's done, it's just a rather poor afterwards model shot. It doesn't look anything like Hammersmith Bridge crushed. Paul Maxwell turns up, um, gives us another info dump saying that the Golem was built to help the community and it will only be destructive to protect that community. Um... If it was to use, uh, be used selfishly, could have said this earlier, couldn't he? Um, that the, the person controlling the golem will start to lose control of it. So Pym starts getting worried, thinks he's going to be killed. So he orders it to swallow the scroll so it can't be discovered and used by somebody else and sends it off into the river in broad daylight yet again. But it during the night, it returns to the plinth in the museum so again, he takes it out, takes it to a shed in the middle of nowhere, tries burning it, um, but it returns. This time, Paul Maxwell does see it, but he doesn't do anything. Um, um, he confronts Arthur. Arthur's going to go off. No one will believe you. That's when the detective, whose name I can't remember, uh, turns up. And Pim is confined to a prison hospital, but now can somehow mentally summon the golem which um, arrives in a very Kiwi Kingston, Frankenstein's monster kind of way, smashes through the wall, again, in broad daylight. No one sees it, no one screams, no one stops it. Smashes through the wall to break him out. I forgot to mention that um, Grove has a daughter who 
I mean, he is Norman Bates, Arthur, and um, I don't even know if he lusts for for her. But um, yeah, she's been popping up in and out, but she's now more interested in in. I can't remember now. I only watched it yesterday. Either the detective or Paul Maxwell, and that gets um, that gets Arthur jealous. Um, the detective has been round to her place. It's been trashed. Um, he also tells Paul Maxwell that here we go. Arthur stole his mother's dead body from the Undertaker's the night before. The night before. So, but we've seen days earlier her in his house. So is he sneaking her back in somehow? I don't know. And he also had stolen a a hearse. And of course it is Arthur. He's gone and got Ellen. I've remembered her name now. He's gone and got the golem to uh, abduct Ellen. Got in a hearse. So in this hearse, you have got Arthur Pym, Ellen, the Gollum, and a coffin containing his dead mother. And we're going into the third act now. And this bit I do remember. Um, They arrive at this big old house with a gate that's shut. Again, this is all in broad daylight. Um, Miss Swanson comes along because this big old house um, is going to house exhibits from the museum and it seems that Arthur's been regularly going there and he says um, he's got a new sculpture Um, she doesn't seem to question why he's arrived with the sculpture in a hearse but uh, they go through the gate they go up to the house I would swear blind this is Bray Studios it looks just like Bray Studios but it's not but it this is where it really does feel like a contemporary hammer film Um, He says to the golem, you can come out now, bring mother and the casket. He, this guy's totally doolally. He shows Miss Swanson his dead mother, who is in the golem's arms, as if it's the most natural thing in the world. And then not much happens. Um, They all go into the house. Miss Swanson goes up onto the roof. I remember this roof, not only from that photo in that book, but, um, you know, from watching it first time. Um... She goes up onto the roof, builds a very, very small bonfire. And you can see in the background, down on the ground, the golems patrolling the grounds. Miss Swanson goes off to release the girl, tells her she'll start a fire and Ellen should escape while everyone's distracted. Arthur sees the fire. Oh, that's when he has his little... Is that when he has his little dream sequence? No, Arthur's just laying on the bed. Um, you know, just gazing into space, realises there's a fire. We f- we find that out by a red light at the window. Runs up onto the roof. What are you doing? What are you doing? He says to Miss Swanson. She's sh- He picks up like a, a flaming torch, um, sets her alight, but we don't see that. We don't see that. We don't see what happened to her. Um, and that's it. The fire goes out. Somehow, I can't remember why, the army has arrived. This is the next day now. So you've, all you've got is Arthur, Ellen and the Gollum in this big old house. Um, the next morning then, the army has arrived. The Gollum is standing guard at the gate. Now this is a big fence. This is a big estate. At any point, they can drive you know, a vehicle through the fence and go in. But no, they have to go in through the gate. This rather large gate that the, uh, um, the Gollum's guard in. Um, it resists bazooka fire and cannon fire. Um, and then it makes the front pages of all the newspapers. So presumably another day has passed. 
Um, the next evening. Oh, by the way, when 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 Ellen was grabbed, she was in her nighty. All right. Um, we now move to the following evening, and she's still in the same nighty. And then they hear on the radio that they're going to drop an atom bomb on the golem. Um, and, you know, Paul Maxwell's concerned about this, but the army bods are saying, don't worry, it's only a small warhead. It's only got a mile radius. An atom bomb that's got a mile radius. So we move to the next day. Everything's still exactly the same. Um, I think it's hilarious that everybody just puts on these tiny little goggles to watch the blast. Um, the girl is now in... Um, the Gollum's arms, that famous photo, the photo that I remember from the book, it walks outside the gate, drops her. Paul Maxwell does a Steve McQueen great escape on his motorbike. It's a mile away, apparently, and it's just about to go off. Um, but he rushes across to rescue her, uh, brings her back. They crouch down. We see stock footage of a of an, uh, an atomic explosion that looks more to looks to me to be more than a mile wide wild wide sorry uh but the golem's still there it's still walking and someone says it's moving away towards the sea and it's right next door literally right next door we have seen no sight of the sea but apparently this everything that's been happening is right by the sea um and in a very godzilla way it walks into the sea and goes under the water and that's it it just ends like that. Presumably, Arthur uh, died in the atomic explosion. The golem's gone under the water, never to be seen again. What an odd, strange film. Um, it, it, it was written, produced and directed by Herbert J. Leder, who had deliberately set out to emulate the success of Hammer films. I mean, at, at that time, Hammer films were at their peak. And it has been shot and cut and certainly feels like a Hammer film. Um, the Gollum itself, um, played by Alan Sellers, is his name. Um, I don't know who who did the Gollum costume, but the look of it, it could certainly have been created by Roy Ashton. And if you had had Michael Ripper in there and a few of the other um, Hammer stock actors, I think it would fit right in their stable of films. There is a dream sequence um, when Arthur's at home where he sees Jill Hayworth, who plays Ellen, and she's kind of sort of semi-topless. Um, and at the end, when she needs rescuing, there's a few down-blousy moments of her nighty when she's being rescued. But apart from that, we don't get any of the overt hammer titillation that uh, was starting to show, if you excuse the pun, at that time. But yeah, it's certainly... It certainly could be a cousin of, of of a Hammer film, and as I say, the uh, the actual location is is Merton Park Studios, which looks an awful lot like Bray. Um, it's a very silly film. Um, it's quite fun. It makes absolutely no sense, um, but I didn't mind uh, buying it to watch it again. Oh, talking about buying it, as I say, it, I think it was a, a knockoff. DVD, but uh, it's a copy of a, a, a legitimate release, um, and it's a double bill. Um, it's uh, it's this film and a film called The Shuttered Room, which I don't know anything about, um, but I looked into because I now own it, and it seems to be 
a uh, an inspired by H.P. Lovecraft type tale, whether there's Cthulhu links or not. But uh, it does look quite interesting. And, and looking at the uh, background to it, I'm even more interested in that uh, even though it's set in Lovecraft's traditional New England settings, it was actually made here in Kent in England about 15 miles away from here uh, on an estuary of the River Medway. And I've Google imaged it and uh, it doesn't look like it's been developed at all since uh, they made that in the 60s. It's an Oliver Reed film, by the way. Um, And apparently his American accent is atrocious. So I think what what I'm going to do for my YouTube channel is I'm going to uh, I'm going to watch it and I'm going to get in the car and I'm going to travel down there and I'll do a little YouTube video of that at some point. So that's that. Um, that's me done for today. Um, thanks for uh, bearing with me. Um, I've I absolutely know what we're doing next time when uh, when I come back with my brother. So um, before long, another episode. Thanks for your time. See you next time. Oops, uh, nearly forgot. Score out of 10. Um, I, li- I like the design of it. It's unusual. I like the colour. I like the pointy head. Um, but uh, no, nah, it's... Uh, no. Nah. Uh, five. <laughs>